Would you please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 26 and the gospel of Matthew, our text this morning will be verses 47 to 56. And Matthew just so carefully lays out the events that are leading to the crucifixion of Christ and in great detail and really dramatic fashion um, does not generalize or overlook the passion of our Christ as he offers himself to do the will of the Father for our redemption. The title of the message this morning is Christ in Control. Christ in Control. And believer, this morning these are three words filled with hope for us today. And it is our purpose then this morning to look into this passage and to find this bedrock surety, this assurance that Jesus Christ is in control. And you and I are living in a time where we are feeling battered and shaken and um, weak, exhausted, and we need to hear this word of assurance this morning from the Gospel of Matthew. Christ is in control. He always has been. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 47 Please follow along with me as I read. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, would you open the word of God for us this morning? Would you open our eyes and our ears to hear? Oh, that we might behold wondrous things of our Savior Jesus, who in the darkest of hours betrayed and abandoned, yet fully in control. And Father, such was necessary not only for the fulfillment of the Scriptures, but to fulfill salvation for us. For here we find Christ is fully qualified to become our Redeemer. Oh, blessed be His name. And Father, would You dwell with us 
during this time, would you teach us one more time, show us Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Quite often we confuse our sorrow and regret for our sin with pity for Christ. What I mean is without much thought, we look upon Christ in his final hours as is outlined in the gospel's final chapters, specifically here in Matthew. We look upon Christ in his final hours with sympathy as if he is weak and powerless. That he has succumbed to the inevitable judgment for our sins as one who is a victim. And in the humility and in our humble worship, we see the humiliation of Christ as something to be pitied. But behind the humiliation of Christ, and this is really the goal of every gospel writer because they saw it. Behind the humiliation of Christ is every part of majestic and infinite power. In the final hours leading to Christ's death, Christ's power was never more on display. What this reveals in us is what we have seen in the disciples during these crucial moments. The revealing in us of this pity for Christ, this sorrow, this agony, this sympathy for Christ. What it reveals in us is, is the very same feelings and the same really root beliefs that the disciples were wrestling with in this very hour. It's a feeling of overconfidence in ourselves, a false loyalty and a spirit of independence that we have already seen. How does our overconfidence, how does our false loyalty, how does our spirit of independence reveal itself as we look upon Jesus Christ in pity? Well, Christ demonstrates his power and control to defeat exactly this type of thinking in his disciples. Jesus, even in this very hour, is still pursuing the heart of his disciples. And brother and sister, Jesus is pursuing your heart and desiring to correct your thinking and the root of your faith. The root of your, our faith is still needing to be refined. And even as you and I look into these pages, we are still looking with a weakness of faith. We are still looking and beholding Christ with an overconfidence in our own strength. If we're a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, who believe that you need Jesus only sometimes in your life, we would never say that, but we live like that. If we believe that we need Jesus only sometimes in our life, then let's join together and look again at the humiliation of Christ and see what the Word of God reveals about the majesty and glory of Christ in His humiliation. Now listen, those words don't normally go together in this world. Humiliation and exaltation. That's exactly what's being really laid out through a sub-theme in Matthew's Gospel, is exaltation through humiliation. And it all began in verse number one when we found out that Jesus, that God had come to be a son of man. Matthew 1.1 informs us and it sets the stage to show us that God will be humiliated. That he will humble himself and yet lose nothing of his exaltation. And as a matter of fact, his humiliation will become the grounds for his great exaltation. And so let's look this morning at three truths about Jesus 
in this. And this, this morning, let's let the Word of God, and this is my prayer, and this is our prayer together, let the Word of God confront our individualistic determinism mode of living for Christ. Let the Word of God confront us in our trust of our own flesh. Number one, Jesus is in complete control of his own suffering. Jesus is in complete control of his own suffering. Notice, looking back into the passage, at least three times we find this sign that Jesus is in complete control of his suffering. Look at number, verse number 50 as he speaks to Judas. Friend, do what you came to do. Notice in verse 52, put your sword back into its place. And then also in verse 54 and verse 56, verse 54, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? And similar wording, verse 56, all this has taken place of the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Notice the calmness of Christ. Notice the calmness of Christ during this scenario. The calmness of Christ is rooted in three truths that I think, that I believe ought to root us in a calmness and assurance that Jesus is in control. And this morning, these three truths really speak against uh, our, own, um, our own strength, our own independence. The first truth that we find that, that is rooted in the calmness of Christ in these passages is that Jesus is willing to trust God at his word. Jesus is willing to trust God at his word. Notice in verse 54 and 56, he references this, the fulfillment of the scriptures that his, he is rooting his faith, he is rooting his trust in the unshakable and the um, unfailing word of God. Christian, there is a calmness that ought, to be, uh, that ought to be a tone about our lives that finds itself in the surety and the unfailing Word of God. What is it that is, that is producing a calm? What is it that is in the nature of Christ's calmness during this hour? He is calm because He is trusting in the Word of God. When you are not calm, you are not trusting in the Word of God. When you are not at peace, when you're at anxiety, when you're at unrest, you can count on it. You're not trusting in God's word. But also, not only is this a contributing factor to the calmness of Christ, but secondly, that he is trusting not only in God's word, but in God's will. That he is trusting in God's will. That God has willed him, that God has sent him to accomplish this. He is trusting in God's purposes. And this is a facet, this is part of the nature, this is part of the characteristic of the calmness of Christ. Now, Christ has every reason from a human point of view to not be calm at this time. There are likely around 600 soldiers, along with a varied number of temple guards, and 11 
failing disciples all around him. The hour has come for him to be offered over to be crucified. Think of a time when you have been in the throes of the crucible of suffering amidst confusion, betrayal, abandonment, those feelings. Calmness is the last thing that we demonstrate. I would venture to say, and with a little bit of humor, but a little bit of truth, that we have a hard time even being calm when it's a good day. We have a hard time being calm when there is no storm. Christ was trusting in God's Word, and Christ was trusting in the will of the Father, and Christ was trusting in God's providence. That is, that God was working out all things, had already been working all things. This, by the way, is noted here, especially in verse 54 and 56, that the Scriptures might, might be fulfilled. What has already been set into motion, I am having confidence that this, the, the end of the story is already set into motion. We live far too often in the now. We live far too often in, in, the, in the, the, the present time. And we allow too much of the now to dictate to us what is the future, rather than allowing the purposes of God revealed through His Word, through His will, and through His providence to tell us what is happening in time to come. But our Savior was calm. Notice the calmness of Christ. But also notice the character of Christ. Jesus doesn't need to be arrested. Uh, He is willing to offer himself, but he, he will be arrested here. But he doesn't need to be arrested. He's the most innocent man who ever lived. He's the most innocent man who ever lived. Truly innocent. Truly blameless. This contrast, this, this paradox is, is put before us really through all the gospel writers that here we have the innocent one being arrested. Now, I know that um, our justice system works, it out, works itself out in, in, in good ways at times where, where, where uh, a guilty person is arrested and is taken to trial and, and sentenced. But sometimes our justice system fails and, and an innocent person goes through that process. Innocent, at least, of the crime they're being accused of. But there has never been an innocent person in the history of humanity arrested like Jesus. Jesus is innocent of every single blame. He is innocent of every single fault. And He is being arrested. And He's being arrested, He says, in verse 56... I'm sorry, 55. At the hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Just think for a moment of the ridiculousness of this picture. Okay? We have God Almighty and we have 600 soldiers, His own, create, his own creatures, coming out against Him with clubs and swords. The one who spoke 
and the planets spun into place. The one who spoke and the galaxy was formed. The one who spoke and the, the atoms were put together in the soil of the earth. The one who breathed to bring out his own man and fashioned a woman from his side. This one they come out with clubs and swords against. My friend, um, the evil one and the wicked of this world look just as foolish in their, in their attacks against God. And we may, have, we may live in a world full of dangerous weapons and even darker conspiracies and schemes. But nobody, nobody looks wise when they stand in opposition against God Almighty. Everyone looks like a fool. But Jesus is not a robber and he's not a rebel And he's more than a rabbi. He's the last Adam that's come to save the human race. And notice, notice that even in his arrest, Jesus says in verse number 50 to Judas, friend, do what you came to do. Jesus gives permission for them to arrest him. Do you hear sovereign power in that permission? Jesus was no victim. So we see that Jesus is in complete control of his own offering. We have been seeing this unfold really throughout the whole book of Matthew. But we especially have been seeing this in just this chapter 26. He is in complete control of his suffering, beginning from the very first verses when we hear that the priests are conspiring with Judas and leading into the offering of Mary as she anoints Jesus with oil and leading to the betrayal then, the, 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 the deal that Judas makes and then leading into the Last Supper as Jesus lifts up the cup and breaks the bread and then leading into the garden where he says, Nevertheless, not your will, but thy, not my will, but thy will be done. And now is the arrest. And all of this is showing absolute sovereign control over his own offering, over his own suffering. But secondly, we notice that Jesus is incomparably powerful over his enemies. Jesus is incomparably powerful over his enemies. Notice in verse number 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? Now a legion, historically speaking in the Roman army, one legion was 6,000 Roman soldiers. How many legions does Jesus say that he could have if he just asked the Father? Twelve. Now, could he have more? Likely. Could it be, by the way, that there are 12 people standing there who could use some defense? Jesus and the 11 disciples. One legion for each of them. Now, that's spreading it out a little bit, but let's think of that. So, each disciple has 
one legion to defend him against the soldiers, one legion being 6,000 soldiers. Talk about guardian angels. Twelve legions would be 72,000 soldiers if he asked the Father. How many Roman soldiers were there that night? Probably around 600. 72,000 verses 600. Now in the Old Testament, you'll remember that one angel actually defeated 185,000 Amalekites on a day of judgment in the middle of the night. One angel. If it was an angel that passed through Egypt, many thousands were slaughtered on that night by the means of one angel. Imagine the devastation that 72,000 angels could do. This is some of what was inspiring the songwriter when he said he he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. This is the truth that was on the songwriter's heart. Hendrickson, the commentator, said it this way. He said, they came with torches and lanterns to seek out the light of the world. They came with swords and clubs to subdue the Prince of Peace. Turn with me to John 18 and look at his um, synoptic uh, version of this in John 18 and verse 1. John adds some more to the story here that Matthew doesn't include, but it's going to come to point of the incomparably power, power that Christ has over his enemies. In John 18, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Gidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. He said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Who's they? Well, it is the guards, the soldiers. They drew back and fell to the ground. They did not fall to the ground, by the way, in worship and reverence. What was it that caused them to draw back and fall to the ground? This, this idea is to stumble and fall and to lay really humiliated, prostrate upon the ground. It was when Jesus said, I am he. And really, this is I am. This is God revealing himself in the name, I am. And when the name of Christ went forth, it went forth with great power, thunderous power, and it literally knocked the soldiers off their feet. And they laid on the ground. Now Matthew doesn't seem to... um, be called by the Spirit to include that in this passage, but it speaks to this point. Here we have soldiers who have come to arrest Christ. And here has been revealed that they are standing in the presence of God Almighty, who is in sovereign control. 
And it's likely, by the way, that uh, some of these soldiers, I think it's reasonable to, to think of this, that some of them had never been around Jesus. Some of them had probably never even heard very much of the Jewish Messiah or, the, or even Jehovah, Israel's God. And now, all of a sudden, they're in the presence of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and they are eating the dirt. And John points this out, that Jesus says, I am he, and they stumble to the ground, verse 7, and so he asks them again, who do you seek? (laughs) He had already... He had already told them, notice verse 4 again in John 18, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, who do you seek? And then, boom. And then he asked them again, who do you seek? Verse 8, I told you, I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And so the second time these soldiers are able to stand to their feet only because he allows them to. Only because he lets them stand back up. And verse 9, John says, this was to fulfill the word that was spoken. Paul says in Philippians 2, that as Jesus descended from the throne of God in verse number 8, he was found in human form and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. I notice a difference here in time to come in the eschaton. This is a time when... when when men, when hearing the name of Jesus, should be blown off their feet. But there's a time to come when even the most wicked and vile of this world will not just be taken back by the presence of Christ. They will be humbled to worship Him and to pay Him reverence. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every knee, Paul says, and let me qualify it, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, wherever there's a knee, it's going to be bent in reverence for Jesus Christ. And every tongue, wherever there's a knee and wherever there's a tongue, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. But we need to trust in this, that Jesus is incomparably powerful over his enemies. God is all-powerful and God can do anything that he wants to do. We don't serve a weakling God. We don't give our lives to a God who is a wimp. And I know we know these things to be true. But we need to hear them and we need to see them. And we see it very clearly here in Scripture. We serve a God 
who is all-powerful. And we grossly underestimate God's power all the time. We are prayerless. We are independent. We are full of anxiety and doubt and worry. We are full of inaction and idle and lazy. We do not apply ourselves to the power of God. We are just like the disciples. And what's Jesus' point in saying this? That if he wanted to, he could call upon his Father and receive twelve legions of angels. Is Jesus just flexing? No, he's showing that it isn't because Jesus, that he lacks power, that he can't escape the arrest and the subsequent crucifixion. It's exactly opposite. He is powerfully working all things together for the purpose of the crucifixion. Jesus is going to the cross, not because he cannot stop it, but because that's where he was going all along. He came to die. Don't forget that. J.C. Ryle explains beautifully. We see in these words, and he's talking about these things being fulfilled, the secret of his voluntary submission to his foes. He came on purpose to fulfill the types and promises of the Old Testament scriptures and by fulfilling them to provide salvation for the world. He came intentionally to be the true Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. He came voluntarily to be the scapegoat on whom the iniquities of the people were to be laid. His heart was set on accomplishing this great work. It could not be done without the hiding of his power for a time. To do it, he became a willing sufferer. He was taken, tried, condemned, and crucified entirely of his own free will. If we don't understand this, we don't understand much about our salvation and his offering. Jesus shames these men. He puts them to shame. He's no robber and he's no revolutionist. This would be, by the way, the argument that will begin to be unfolded of the Jewish leaders before the Roman emperor and the Roman um, governors that Jesus is a revolutionist. He's not a robber. He's not a revolutionist. Is that, if that's what you see when, when you see Christ in the scriptures and you see his ministry, you're, we're just so far from the truth. Jesus didn't come to reclaim culture. Jesus didn't come to revolutionize culture. Christ came to redeem people from the most fundamentally broken and failing condition, sinfulness. It wasn't about behavior at all. It wasn't about how people should act. It wasn't about what people should do that Jesus came to correct. Sin is about what drives the behavior. And Jesus came to die for sinners, not to teach them how to live. And this is so much of what we hear in our Christianesque culture is this ethos that we just, uh, we just need to live this certain way. Because that's what Jesus told us to do. But we have to begin at the very, the very core of the, the heart problem. And Jesus didn't come to teach sinners how to live well. But He came to die for sinners. 
that they might be changed. Jesus came to die for sinners. And thirdly, not only do we see his incomparable power over his enemies, but we see Jesus is faithful in compassion even until the end. Jesus is faithful in compassion even until the end. In verse 52, Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. John and Luke both record, Peter, Matthew doesn't. He doesn't record that it's Peter. By the way, notice again, Matthew doesn't give us a name again. He doesn't give us the name of a disciple here. He didn't give us the name of the woman who poured the oil on the, on the head of Jesus. He doesn't give us the name of the man who would prepare the room for the Last Supper. And here he doesn't give the name of this disciple. Why? I, I, think, I don't know why. But I'd like to suggest one if you'll let me. Because he wants the name of Jesus to just keep resonating in front of you. It's all about him. It didn't matter the names of these people. It's about Jesus. Keep watching. Keep your eyes on Jesus. You ever watch a race? Watch maybe an Indy 500 race? And you see all the cars racing around the racetrack and maybe you had a favorite, you know one or one looks familiar to you and it starts to get lost in all dozens of cars out on the racetrack. But soon the news broadcast will put these little digital flags above the race car as it flies around the racetrack so you know, oh, that's, that's the guy. This is, I think, what Matthew is trying to do as the hours grow darker here. Matthew is just keeping Jesus right out front. And there's a reason for that. It's because Jesus must be the one that dies for our sin. Notice that Matthew will identify Judas here, and he's already told us who Judas is, but notice in verse 47, he says, Judas came one of the twelve, like there was any other Judas that he had told us about. We've been reading your book, Matthew, all along. We know this Judas. You've told us who he is all this time. But he's showing us that he was one of the twelve. What are the rest of the men doing too? None of them are, are fit to carry the cross. Judas wasn't fit, but neither are the rest of the twelve. And even now, his, to his captors, Jesus is casting far and wide the seeds of the gospel. Jesus says to Judas in verse number 50, Friend, friend. Maybe just meditate on that word that he uses for Judas the rest of the week. And maybe you're listening to this sermon this morning and you, you are no Christ follower. You are one who, who despises Christ. You are one who um, has rejected Christ. The things that you've done or at least thought of doing are vile and wicked. 
by the hearing of the word of God this morning. Jesus is saying to you, like he was saying to Judas, friend. Notice the further compassion is that he is continuing to spread far and wide the seeds of the gospel. What had happened in John 18, don't forget, I am and the men fell to the ground. A revelation of this is, this is God of gods, Lord of lords. I, I often, my, my question often goes in different directions when I read passages like this. And I just wonder, maybe there's some day when you and I will come across one of those Roman soldiers, one of those 600 Roman soldiers who then joined one of the New Testament churches and grew to know Jesus Christ as Savior. And we'll talk to him that day, in a day to come. Say, what was it like in the garden? And his head will hang in shame and tell us about the first part of his life. And then his countenance will change and say, it was like that until... I heard the name I am. And that changed everything for me. Christ is just preaching who he is all the way to his last breath. Even to Judas. And even to his enemies and even to his disciples. And Jesus would say to the the captors to let his disciples go. And the reason why Jesus would not compel others to stand with him was because of this critical truth. Why didn't Jesus just say, guys, come on, stand with me. Who's with me? He didn't look around and say, I told you guys this was going to happen. Come on, you can do it. Come stand with me. Come with me. No, he says, let them go. And the reason is this. Because he alone must die. And he must die alone. And there's a point in this. And this, this is a, a very acute point. It's a very, a very critical part of our doctrine of Christ as biblical Christians. This idea that Christ dies alone stands in contrast with many of the practices of Christian churches. Mary didn't die with Jesus. Peter didn't die with Jesus. None of the disciples died with Jesus. In fact, remember who died with Jesus? Some sinners. Only Jesus will qualify because of his death. Because of who he is and that he died to be the mediator. On this day, everybody fails. Nobody can die with Jesus. He dies alone. So our hope isn't in the saints. 
and our hope isn't in the church. And our hope isn't in some confession or catechism or ritual. There's only one. And he made it very clear that he would die alone. Because only he alone could die for our sins. Jesus accomplishes our redemption by himself. He didn't need the disciples' help. And he doesn't need your help. And he still doesn't. When looking on the life and death of Christ, when you see a certain aspect of his nature magnified, look to see its corresponding negative feature of our sinful hearts. So for example, when in scripture it seems so evident that righteousness is in Jesus Christ, that he is righteous, note that what it is speaking against is even without words, is that we are not righteous. We are self-righteous. When we see in Christ, when we see humility of Christ, know that God is contrasting that with our pride. Though all betray you, I will stand with you. When you see power, like in this passage. What is its opposite in our sinful, failed hearts? Weakness. Not only physical weakness, but weakness even of faith. Weakness even of mind. When you see compassion in Christ, it stands against our indifference and our hatred. Jesus is in complete control of his suffering. He had been ever since before the foundation of the world. All the historic events of humanity culminate in these moments in the garden and in Jerusalem. All the angels, all creation, All humanity has come to this point. And this is why he came. Everything, and that's not a generalization, everything has led to this point. He came to reveal his glory and pleasure to save sinners who will rule and reign with him for the rest of eternity. That's why he came. And so he is undeterred in Gethsemane. But not only is Jesus' complete control of his suffering, but he is incomparably powerful over his enemies. Nothing will stand in Jesus' way to offer himself and raise himself for our salvation. Not all the devices of the devil, not the dark alley treacherous dealings of one of the twelve, Not a weakness or flaw in his own character will diminish his ability even one shade to accomplish victory over the ultimate enemy. And what is the ultimate enemy? Death. 
nothing will stand in the way between Jesus and giving you life. And lastly, Jesus is enduringly compassionate to the end. Jesus is compassionate to the lost. He's compassionate to soldiers who had never seen him, to Judas whose deceit, guile, and betrayal is repulsive and conclusive, to disciples whose false bravado and abandonment will lead him to the most lonely, to be the most lonely man who ever died. Jesus is compassionate all the way until the end. Jesus came for us. He died for us. He was in complete control, incomparably powerful, and enduringly compassionate. This is the gospel we should hear this morning. Let's pray.